City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. There we are. I just thought yeah. we'd open this morning with the yeah. pouring of the tea. The first sound people are going to hear this morning is the pouring of the tea. A little more uh, successful than You can last do that week. sort of thing yeah, when you're on the, in the studio on your own. You can do that all good with Andy there, of course, as well. But um, as I say, our, our regular co-presenters have uh, so desperate to get away from us. One's in America, one's in England. Um, you the, can't get rid of me, no, Kevin. No, they'll both be back shortly. Mm-hmm. I'm Kevin Healy. He's Andy Britton. We're, um, we're putting City Limits together. It's the fourth Wednesday of the month, and we're going to be talking shortly to Dave Kevin, who was going to come in and co-present for the whole show, but he he put, uh, last night he rang to say he was putting grand paternal duties ahead of uh, Head of city limits. That's pretty. It's yeah. pretty ordinary, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I suppose <laughs> we've all got our duties. <laughs> Taking the kids to kinder or school or whatever. Uh, anyway, um, Dave's going to be on the line in about five or ten minutes. We're going to talk to him on, online, and we're going to keep him online to talk also in the second half of the program with um, Paddy Moriarty from Monash, one of our regular regulars. Paddy was on a couple of weeks ago, but in the second part, Dave's going to talk about and main reason he's on today to catch to talk more about the current programs being run by Earthworker, the group that attempts, and it's been going for a number of years now, and Dave's been active from the outset, the group that attempts to make a link between the environment movement and the labour movement, because often there are clashes there, particularly in areas like forestry, etc., and even coal mining. Um, And um, they've got a number of projects up, including developing renewable energy projects and all sorts of things with worker-run factories. So it's it's really mm, very good, nice. and we'll talk about that. And because of the the technical nature of it, I thought we'd get Paddy on the line to have a chat about some of that as well. Right. So that's the second half of the program. The first half, we're going to get just get an update with the, from Dave about the Victoria Market campaign that he's also been involved in. Uh, and for those that we could have said, Dave, yeah. Dave... Um, Dave is also, um, we should say, he's been a long-term union activist. We're just assuming everyone knows Dave Kerr, but I think most people do. But he's been around the labour movement for so long. He was with Union Solidarity, etc. He was with the BLs back in the time, the period when they were sacked, etc. That going to that mm-hmm. period. Uh, so he's been around a long, long time. And um, he's got to talk about, because uh, I think that he mentioned last time, by about now, he predicted they'd be starting work and they want bodies to go and attempt to stop the work. So we'll uh, we'll talk we'll about that and out. what stage that's reached. Yep, and I do want to talk to him about some broader industrial issues that are going on because he's so involved in industrial uh, matters, including, of course, now that raid yesterday on the union office in, in Melbourne and Sydney, the Australian Workers Union. Yeah, I see we, that. Yeah, which we mightn't consider the most radical union in the country, but uh, uh, we we'll put to him whether. The government's denied that there's any political connection, whatever, in the whole thing, and we'll put to Dave whether he thinks that's the case or not. Um, cool. I think we'll no idea what his answer will yeah. be on that. No, no idea. Say something, Andy, I'm going to have a uh, sip of tea. Yeah. Uh, da, 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 uh, 
You know what I'm like, that Kevin. Was I'm back. generally <laughs> looking at the screen when you throw something like that at me. Well, there you are. I've not much to say, so. <laughs> that didn't work too well. Um, just interesting to note that um, The Age released in the last couple of days the fact that Jeff Kennett rents a, um, an office and um, 200000 rent or whatever has been paid for this office because he has, has the right to have an office uh, based on the fact that he's an ex-premier. The other ex-premiers all... Rent in the um, in in government buildings, the Treasury Place buildings, no offices in there. But Jeff rents this one, and I think those who read the story will know uh, it's it's he pays rent to a company run by his wife, um, yeah. which is all very good. Um, I wonder how all that. Yeah, and it's come out now because, of course, at the moment also he. Um, He's uh, been involved in a dispute with the ETU because he's a director of the Crown Casino. He gets all his other money as well. Um, and, of course, they've sacked um, technicians and outsourced the work to a business, well, according to the AIDS report, outsourced the work to a business that's actually um, run by, um, by a Kennett company. So there you are. Uh, and... Um, and anyway, just just thought I'd throw that one in. But the the other, I will raise with Dave because that question of the casino technicians has also um, been related. It's been used as an excuse by Crown about why they've come under attack. And I might raise it with Dave because yeah. what they're doing, the, the the technicians, I guess, are the ones that if if the allegations are correct and they're rotting the machines, and they're the ones presumably doing it. But anyway, um, they're. They're putting them out, outsourcing it to a business that's that's lowering their wages and conditions, of course, um, and getting rid of the the current uh, technicians. And there's an industrial dispute on, and they claim that it's because of the industrial dispute that these allegations have been raised that they're rorting the system and uh, and increasing the odds in their favour, etc. Okay. Yeah, and, and he's, he's got the odds in his favour anyway, because <laughs> if you actually if you actually do win on a regular basis, you get banned. All right. Yeah, you know, when they don't want winners. <laughs> yeah, I would just assume I'd lose if I went in there, so I'd avoid it. Well, I've never been inside the place. As I've said a couple of times, the only time I've, nearest I've been was that protest back in 02 or wherever it was. Uh, they, yeah. they remember we had, the, I think it was September Vaguely. 11 at the time, of different 7-11, September 11. It was due, there was some event taking place, wasn't there? Uh, oh, and yeah. we marched around the place for three days, but I never actually got inside it, no. Ah, Don't well, plan you've to. done well. <laughs> mm. Here we are. Um, but on um, on our uh, our media and their coverage of events now, two hundred and seventy. Well, in fact, uh, three hundred people now. More than three hundred people um, were killed in that dreadful bombing in Somalia in Mogadishu last week, and thousands presumably injured and infrastructure and buildings destroyed. Mm, Now, the Herald Sun covered it on its news page, on its world news page, back in the book, page 16. Um, It had abuse claims probe, a big story about Harvey Weinstein. California fires ease, bracing for gale force, youth rules in lurch to right, that's an Austrian election. Um... Trump still wants negotiation, Republicans under fire, then three paragraphs, four paragraphs, I'm sorry, bomb um, toll hits 276, well it's gone up since then, and four paragraphs to cover all that. Now imagine if that many people were killed or injured in say Paris, New York, Mm. London, Melbourne, Sydney. Would have been on page 16. There'd be a a 32 page wraparound I reckon Mm. Um, and it'd go on for days, it'd be about jihad and terrorism and 
and horror and the, the heroes of the whole thing, what mm. Aussies were involved. Um, and the telly, the day it happened, would stop all programs and show nothing else all day. Yeah. Uh, but this one, four paragraphs, but in, as I could, as I could make out, the other papers that day didn't mention it at all. So that at least the Herald Sun gave it four parts. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, usually, <laughs> not like them. No, and as I mentioned on the week that was that uh, I, I put I put myself to the torture of watching the Channel Seven News because SBS had had, had, had said they were going to have that story up front with the there was another story of IS being defeated in Iraq. They were the two lead stories, and I thought, well, they're doing all the overseas stuff. So I, I on and off, watched the Channel 7 news. There was car going through a wind, shop window, people saying this thing shouldn't happen in the street, uh, violence in the streets, violent people being taken to court, the usual yeah. array. Um, as far as I, I know, in the whole hour, they didn't actually cover one story outside Australia and very few outside Melbourne. Um, right. But it certainly you shouldn't torture yourself. Like no, that. it didn't get a mention. Well, I did. I did cut back to the SBS news, and then mm. just kept flicking back. But um, yeah, so um, you know, it's. I think it's absolute racism by our media the way they um, they do all that. Sorry, I was just looking across the window there. Yes, from just getting some technical. You know, I missed any ever of it you said, sorry. Right. <laughs> I was distracted. I thought you might have been signalling that someone was on the line or something, but anyway, okay. Um, yeah, I was just saying, though, that, that, you know, I think our, our media is so extraordinarily racist when it comes to how they cover those sort of mm. events. And uh, I would. And I they play a people interest story with a puppy yeah. dog or whatever. Yeah, and I would have thought that, you know, the people of Somalia are pretty important, but yeah. obviously not. No. Yes. A sip of tea. Now, this is an interesting one. Bloke called, um, bloke called, and I'll find his name shortly, Navarro. Navarro. He's an advisor to, to Donald Trump, Peter Navarro. He's director of the White House Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy. And he gave a few reasons last week in a paper as to why American manufacturing has not been going as well as it should, a weakened manufacturing sector. And um, he said this leads to an increase in abortions, spousal abuse, divorce and infertility. Um, so there you are. So there, That explains so, it. Yeah, he's got the whole thing sorted out, obviously. Um, and they're, they're attacking all their their free trade agreements when they mightn't be a bad thing per se they might by accident be doing something decent but we're not sure of that um, but he says the president is working hard on behalf of the American people to make sure our trade agreements are free and fair and benefit the American worker and he's an economist um, part of a, a, of a wing of small but influential White House advisors who believes decades of free trade policies have decimated the US manufacturing base and allowed countries like China, Mexico and Canada to take advantage of the US. But then he, um, he talks about the fact that this, um, as I say, uh, the, the, the problems are 
The consequences are weakened manufacturing base, economic and lost jobs, depressed wages, closed factories and socio-economic costs. The decline of the manufacturing industry leads to higher divorce rate, increased drug and opioid use, rising mortality rate, higher abortion rate, etc., etc. Found the problem to everything. Yeah, he's got it all sorted out. That's good to know. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we inter- I think I mean the last time Dave Kerrin was on, if I remember correctly, we interviewed Laurie Werner, a woman who's in the ALP fighting inside the ALP to stop the treasurer, Tim Pallas, from privatising the state titles office. Remember that? We did okay, that interview, yeah, the yeah. land titles sale. Uh, now, the... The, the 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 agency, the land titles office, it, it tracks who owns land across the state and retains information about mortgages, titles, covenants, leases and easements. So it's it's pretty important and pretty I I would think mostly private information. Now Laurie was fighting away and she said she thought it was mainly a Tim Palace's idea and that there wasn't much support for it. But a story has come out just in the last couple of days um, in fact, yesterday, that says incumbent state governments like to have a strong run into an election with an eye to boosting the bottom line and filling election coppers. And it goes on to say that Palace hopes to flog off the office uh, for a $2 billion plus income um, sale price before the next state election, which is due at the end of next year. So he wants the whole thing. But at the moment, um, UBS, which is one of the big um, big environmental big uh, economic financial institutions and boutique flagstaff partners are providing strategic advice to the government alongside Minter Ellison, which is a very, very expensive big end of town law law firm. And they're said to be rolling up their sleeves on the scoping study, which was announced in the May budget. So it does seem he's intent on going ahead with that. So there may have to be more work to try to stop um, what I think is, you know, is a pretty important office, uh, yep. or pretty important information, which could provide all sorts of benefits to the private sector if you owed it. I would have thought, mm. um, and, and and also I think it was three hundred million. I haven't got the figures in front of me, but I think she said it makes three hundred million a year profit for mm. the government. So you're giving that up for whatever. The South Australian and New South Wales governments have leased theirs out. They're sort of leases, but they're 99 years, so it's effectively a sale. What you're giving up, of course, is that annual income. And um, Mm. in the long term, I think in the long term, for instance, the privatisation of the SEC and Gas and Fuel Corporation, we would have had a lot more in our coppers now if we still owned those. And people would, I suggest, be paying a hell of a lot less for the utility bills. Yeah. So, uh, but then we, we keep privatising. Because I don't, can't remember. Did we mention last week about Circo taking over Centrelink? Did we mention? I think that? we might have. Did we? Okay, we'll pass on that one. Then I, I can't recall. It's we'll come up it somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it keeps coming <laughs> up. But I think most people are aware of it anyway. But one of the good news stories of the week, and I'll do this and then go to Dave Kerrin. Um, the Bob Brown's win in the High Court last week. Yeah, I did um, see that. Yeah, that's, over that's uh, protest, uh, the, the Tasmanian government brought in one of those laws specifically aimed to allow business to go ahead and you can't have any sort of protest about it. Remember, that was the one some, they said if you know, you walk, don't, if you walk past a place too slowly or something, you can be arrested because it's a form of protest. That was the, that law, that's when it was passed a few years ago, I think three or four years ago in Tasmania. And he took the. Um, he was walking through, photographing uh, forest being a, a native forest being being bulldozed, and uh, 
he was arrested by the coppers and he went to court and, and they said there the law is, is improper, it's illegal because uh, it, it takes away your right of protest, etc. So it's really good. There was, there was quite refreshing, a, you know, he's had a win. Yeah, yeah. There, and there was quite a good piece about it uh, on the law report on Radio National yesterday. Uh, yeah. yeah. yeah it's just Check it out. worth mentioning, yeah. Um, anyway, that's that, so we'll let that one slide. And uh, we'll go to Dave Kerrin and have a yarn about, uh, oh, a heap of things with Dave, okay, after Sounds this break. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay, on the line we have Dave Kerrin, long-term union activist, etc. We mentioned that earlier in the show. And Dave, um, thanks for coming on, although we, we, I mentioned earlier that you did put grand paternal duties ahead of us, which we're a bit disappointed about. <laughs> yes, well, we could have them taken out and shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way the government's going is a chance <laughs> for being related to you. <laughs> um, speaking of which, uh, I thought we'd kick off with a couple of industrial matters happening, and I guess one that's immediately in the news was yesterday's raid on um, a union we might not consider the most radical in the world, the AWU, in Melbourne and Sydney, uh, following this, of course, um, bringing in this regulatory body, which which was aimed in the first place, as the government said, effectively to get union officials. Uh, they bring in the body. The body sends the Commonwealth cops in. They raid these offices, and the government says it has absolutely nothing to do with politics. Politics don't come into it, and uh, it was just people doing their job. Um, do you believe that? Well, no, I don't believe it. And one simple reason why is that uh, they defy their own logic. If they were so concerned about the wishes of the rank and file, why don't they approach the rank and file first? I'll take that as rhetorical, Dave, absolutely rhetorical. But, uh, you know, I mean, that's clear, yeah. isn't it? If, you, if you're coming in saying a union leadership has not carried out the wishes or sought the wishes of its own members, in this case, um, mm. they're coming in, it's, it's, a, it's a raid, a, a, a supposedly secret, uh, except for the fact that the whole media scrum is there. Half an hour before. Turn up. The, um, we, the reason the union knew it was going to get raided was the press turned yeah, up. That's <laughs> right. Have the cops arrived yet, he said. <laughs> that's so, right. So, I mean, it's meant to be, uh, you know, coming in on, on with those claims in hand uh, and, and with, with a view to trying to prove in this case, that they either did or didn't um, go to the members to seek a, an opinion, and yet the members are, you know, are treated as just pawns in the in the game. And it goes back, of course, to 07. It's ten years, um, and it's aimed. Well, it, it, this one's aimed specifically at uh, a period when Shorten was secretary of the union. So, again, the government, but the government says that's irrelevant. They just happened to pick that time and do it. Um, but also, of course, it comes in the same week as the government says it wants to it wants to inquire and, and investigate GetUp uh, on the basis that GetUp is is using money to attack hard right wing members of parliament, etc. Um, so there's a real connection here because it is related to giving money to get up as well. So they're they're killing two birds with the one in some sense. Aren't well, they? well, you know, I mean, a union leadership is put there, left wing, right wing, chicken wing. They're all put there with a view to to campaigning um, in the best interest of their members. Um, they use external organisations and agencies to do that. It's absolutely ridiculous that within any democratic structure, a representative body would be asked to go to the members on every single. Uh, campaigning issues. So, mm. I mean, they know this. And as I say, by carrying out a secret raid, quote-unquote, um, instead of going to the, you know, to the to the people 
and saying, well, look, all members of the AWU, be, be aware, we believe this has happened and we want information from, me, from your union on that. The union's already said they would have cooperated and given them whatever documents they wanted. So, you know, it's, it's all it is. It's a, obviously a, a political beat-up. It reminds me, going back to the raid on the BLF, mm. remember the big the five claims, the, the Gaddafi connections, the, the Belgian bank accounts, the slush fund, all disproved in the end by their own, um, if memory serves, $1,000 a day, um, Mr Sharp, the investigator... Yes. All the claims disproved, but but by that time the damage had been done uh, by by the action itself. Mm. So it's a yeah, it's it's clearly a beat up and. Well, know, it's like yeah. the the Royal Commission, of course, which we, some people think was a bit of a beat up as well. But it you know it, allegations by the by the um, Crown Prosecutor, as he effectively was so called so called counsel in assisting, um, massive incredible claims all over the papers. Um, but when they were when they were later proved to be absolutely incorrect, no coverage, whatever. Absolutely, that's right. I mean, I remember one of their key witnesses. Um, his name will spring to mind in a yeah, moment. Yeah, that copper who got cross-examined and went to pieces. Yeah, well, well, yeah, and even worse than him was the the bloke who who supposedly done Johnny's uh, Johnny Setka's uh, veranda for him for you know gratis and oh, uh, that did all these other things and it turns out like he was running his uh, his father's hardware business at the time so it would have been a little hard for him to be out there building anything yeah. you know like it's a complete and utter uh, assault to try and finish off the union movement and by taking out its leaderships. Are we are we now likely to see a raid? I guess we will follow in this a raid on say businesses that gave money to the Institute of Public Affairs during the last election. With that, that's well, that's under, on the cards, is it not? Under that logic, unless they went to their rank and file and got uh, got permission for that, and I bet you they didn't. So because there would have been no need to, why why would you? Um, you know, I mean, if if you look at consultancies and action groups and think tanks and the size of the scale of all of that within the capitalist economies now. I mean, you're, you're putting a fair, a fair sector of the economy at risk if you, if you go down that road, it seems to me. Yeah, I think there's one section of the economy they're trying to put at risk, and that's it. Well, well, I think, I think that's right. It is, in, in fact, it is the, you know, it's the, obviously the progressive think tanks and, and um, uh, you know, um, networkers and action groups that they put. I mean, witness the fact that, you know, years ago they they went for the community sector's right to, um, you know, to, to to act in the community's interest to advocate, uh, and and uh, withheld funding for any organisation that wouldn't give, you know, commitment that it wouldn't advocate. So, mm. you know, this is an old, um, it, it's an old tactic, uh, you know, part of a strategy, and. So, so when the government says there's absolutely nothing political about raiding something seven years ago, but had to do with Bill Shorten and Get Up, etc., um, you're suggesting they mightn't be quite telling the truth. I'd be a little cynical. Yeah, yeah okay, right. <laughs> Got that. <laughs> Speaking of a little cynical, um, poor old Nigel Hedgekiss was forced to resign recently, of course, as head of the um, Inquisition. Um, the whatever it's called, the ABCC, it's called the yep. no, construct whatever it's called. The anyway, the Jackboots Commission that looks at the building union um, because he'd been giving out the wrong advice, uh, or he deliberately gave out advice that something was the law that wasn't. That's essentially his fault. He actually got fined for that. 
Um, he got fined 8500 for that last year, but it, that didn't come out. Or in September he got fined. Uh, but for a year, the minister knew about it. But it seems to have gone underground that, you know, I would have thought the minister knowing for a year that one of her senior people whom she was supporting so strongly had acted illegally um, worried it a bit more than her just saying she knew. Absolutely. I mean, and, and again, with this mob, there's a whole history of it, isn't there? I mean, whether it's the ABCC and industrial relations or it's, it's, it's the Iraq war or, you know, well, we went into the Iraq war, you know, to get rid of weapons of mass destruction, but there weren't any. But oh, look, look, uh, the, the, you know, at least we got rid of Saddam and that's a good that's thing, right. isn't it? So, regime change was really important. Yeah, you know, so it's like, you know, it, yeah, it's this thing that you can just imagine if it was someone on the other side or a green or how they would have gone for these people. Front page news all over the place. And, uh, you know, minister responsible. Under the, under the Westminster system, it's ministerial responsibility. She should go, quite clearly. Mm. And, in fact, the, the legal counsel who only came onto the job a couple of months ago, Anthony Southall QC, Deputy Commissioner of Legal for the ABCC, he has quit because he... Um, says it's now untenable because he did have some knowledge, apparently, or he, he wasn't there at the time this happened, but he, he he's only appointed on August 7 to a five-year term, but he has quit um, because of all the um, all the, the big smell that's now over Hedgekiss and the whole commission. Yeah, well, that's it. And so everyone around her is falling on their sword. Um, but, uh, you know, yes, it's that thing about... Uh, I noticed in today's press they talked about Trump and his strategy of... Um, uh, always turn it into a fight, um, you know, yeah, and never apologise, basically. So, you know, I think that's that's been the Howard, Abbott, Turnbull, Cash strategy now, hasn't it, for, for a long, long time. Uh, well, absolutely, and what I find interesting, and in, in yesterday's financial review, untenable ABCC legal counsel quits, and that's the t- top half of the story on page nine. The two headlines below that, frustrated judges put fine pedal to the metal for militant union, an attack on, you know, we can guess who, and CFMEU fined 98000 for member-only regime because they actually said if you weren't in the union you couldn't come on the job. How shameful. Uh, it's illegal, of course. And going back a couple of days, in fact, to last Friday, um, headline again, CFMEU most recidivist offender in history, and that was a quote from a judge who again sentenced them to thousands of fines. Um, so um, while... While Cash knew about this for a year and did nothing, and only he finally resigned himself, um, the the attacks on the unions just continue. That's right. Aren't they the most recidivist? I mean, if you most recidivist in history, I mean, that, there's been a lot of pretty bad people around, haven't there, in history that you might think are a bit worse than the CFME? <laughs> yeah, I think that's about right. I- and look, if you go back, you know, if you go back in time, I mean, 1977 when they introduced 45 DME, Fraser, and uh, unfortunately our movement ducked and weaved, thinking you could go along with it and get around it. But you've just seen that corralling of our movement from 45 DMEs, 45 DMEs introduction right through to now. You can see that, that corralling of, of union rights where, in fact, um, the ILO conventions stated that if you introduced 45 DNA or similar secondary yeah, boycotts... You better explain. A lot of young people might know what they were, but they were about secondary boycotts, etc., yeah, that, that were banned. That's yeah. right. And yeah. if you introduced secondary boycott laws, which said if you and I were running a picket, we couldn't stop a, 
a truck coming in because that truck, you know, was part of another business, a secondary business. So, so you know, but the, the ILO conventions indicated that if you were to introduce legislation like that, you would also introduce the no secondary workforce, no SCAV legislation, that, that, that one would balance the other. Mm. Now, of course, they never went anywhere near that. And I think it is time now that our movement um, insisted that we abide by all of the ILO conventions so that where, you, where a government's got 45 DNE secondary boycott laws, it also has uh, laws which indicate that an employer cannot employ a secondary workforce, a scab workforce. Yeah. But in fact, it's going the other way. As we know, they, the Glencore one up in Queensland at the moment, that where the, where the workers are actually locked out, they're not on strike. Yeah. But the company up there has brought in its own rules that you can't call scabs scabs or hold messages they consider insulting to people. Yeah. And the courts, in fact, have ruled in favour of them, um, not for the law per se, but a, but a rule they made up themselves and ruled that that was okay and, and banned the union from saying nasty things to scabs. Yes, well, it's probably time we introduced a, a, another term like sore knee. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A sore knee, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've got a scab on the sore knee. Uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, but just on, in terms of those terrible attacks on the, and the, the most um, recidivist in history, uh, at the same time we're seeing... Uh, allegations of impropriety at Crown Casino that I mentioned earlier uh, and again um, senior executives of Rio Tinto have been charged recently with the most serious of, of, of corporate crimes um, but I can't see the government um, and in fact in a, it, they, that the corporate one in the, the, it's a, the US that's taken action against Rio Tinto not Australia even though it was the Australian division uh, and with Crown, the federal government and the opposition have both said they won't take any action over the matter. Yes, uh, and, and, and isn't it again, it's just it's consistent with the, the, the earlier years of the rollout of neoliberalism right mm. through to the present time where they deregulate, um, uh, you know, the, the market, and, uh, but, but hyper-regulate labour and, and, and our movements. And uh, you can see it globally, and this is just another example of it. Yeah, in fact, there's an article by a bloke, a think piece article in this week's Guardian Weekly um, by a bloke in Britain who makes that very point that <clears throat> that we need to free up borders. Instead of having border protection like Australia's got, um, people should be free to travel wherever they want to around the world as capital is. That, you know, as we say, we've said it many times, capital is free to go anywhere, people are not. Um, and he argues we need to break down those borders and uh, and allow people to move wherever they want to, where they can work. Yeah, and, and of course, the the, the um, all of the the grand theoreticians of neoliberalism, um, you know, would have would have uh, when they're in the ivory tower, they would have advised that. But what did it actually amount to in the real world? Well, it amounted to to racist policies like four, five, seven visas. Mm. Um, so again, a hyper regulation of of labour and labour rights. Um, within a within a free capitalism. That's right, and 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 workers are, are then then become nothing more than pawns, of course, in the system. That's right. With the extra thing that well, if you do arc up, if you do join a union, and you're on a four, five, seven visa, we will send you home. Yeah, and you'll never get back here. So, yeah. you know, it's. It, it, but you've got a right to join the union, just that you'll throw you oh, out. Like a football team, remember yeah, that one? Right. Yes, yeah, you, that's you right. Have the right to be in a union, just like yeah. in a football club. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
Well, well, the day Collingwood wants to come into my workplace and fight for my rights, I would see that as you know, <laughs> a legitimate Mc... point. <laughs> if Eddie Maguire was fighting for your rights, Dave, I'd, get, I'd toss him the tail. <laughs> 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 if you don't mind my saying so. <laughs> well, All right. you know, Look. religion and football, hey, we're getting a bit... <laughs> <laughs> Look, we'll move on to, um, to one of the reasons you're actually on today, just to get an update on where we're at with the Victoria Market Campaign, which you've been involved in the campaign to save the market from the attacks by the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, who wants to, we consider, change it too dramatically. Um, where's it at? So at the moment, the um, heritage—it's—it's it's, uh, the question is once again the ball's back in Heritage Victoria's court. Like the, the um, Heritage are considering um, the council's position uh, as as we speak, and uh, stallholders and traders and friends of the Queen Victoria market have put in a lot of submissions around the heritage and the heritage listing of the sheds and uh, the, the, the internal footprint in the market. So that's, that's going on as we speak. Also this week, hosted by the um, uh, Victorian government, but also, of course, ironically, by um, uh, uh, Mayor Robert Doyle, is the World Congress of Markets here in <laughs> Melbourne at Jeff Shed. Um, in fact, I think today might be the final day of that um, now, some of the delegates, the overseas delegates from there, went down to the market um, uh, on, uh, where are we, I think yesterday, Tuesday, and uh, ran, ran into a storm of, um, of, of stallholders and traders wanting to speak to them, uh, having signs up at their sheds and uh, indicating that um, you know, they haven't been consulted, they don't agree with the changes, that the market is, is, is experiencing death by a thousand cuts. Um, and uh, trying to, yeah, just to have some very healthy conversations with the delegates, the attendees at the um, at the World Congress of Markets down at Jeff Shed. So, you know, it's been a very busy, uh, very busy week. Um, uh, Stallholders and traders are still considering now um, taking it to the streets as as a last resort. Uh, now, that was um, that that decision will be a big one because, of course, you're talking about. Um, small businesses that have a license to operate within the market, and uh, you know the storeholders and traders are very, very worried that their licenses will be under threat if they take action. But uh, so that's that's where it's at at the moment. People are um, people are, are discussing that very point because they understand if if they go down that road and the community comes in uh, behind them, then there's no turning back, and mm. uh, the whole but- thing would be. You know, the whole question would be brought to a head. Last time you were on, you mentioned that you, know, you sort of thought it would be about now, but obviously it isn't. Uh, that people might be needed to sit down in front of the bulldozers, so to speak, and uh, and try to stop the work. Yes. Um, we're not we're not at that stage yet, obviously. Well, the the um, our understanding is that the um, the uh, QVM management and, and the council are going to bring in uh, services and utilities before the end of the year, getting them ready for building this glass house down the centre of the market into which they want to put uh, stallholders and traders that are currently in the sheds so they can begin the process of dismantling the sheds. Mm. Um, now, at that point, this is this is now the crux of it, I guess. Um, uh, unless Heritage um, has a heart transplant and, and ex-union pressure takes its own stand and says no, to the to the to the uh, to the mayor, um, 
um, then, in other words, if Heritage gives the OK and and that work goes ahead, then that's the crunch time. That's when. And uh, we'll we'll certainly you'll we'll certainly be let know and uh, let inform people, ask people to get down there at that stage, obviously. Well, well, that's right. And as I say, it's it's, and I'm saying this at the risk of you know Doyle and others taking this as an advantage, but it has to be said that. Stallholders and traders at the moment are really, really worried and concerned about taking that route. So we were going to have a practice run, if you recall, last time mm, I was on air, yeah. last Saturday. Now, in the end, with all the heritage stuff going on and the World Congress of Markets going on, stallholders and traders said, well, no, you know, maybe now's not the time to go ahead. So there's a lot of nervousness uh, because you're looking at the businesses that you know have three and more generations in them. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's such a big step. It's not like an action group that um, doesn't have a vested interest. So if indeed they take the step to go down that road, um, then it'll be on and it is just going to be so crucial that the community gets in on in large numbers behind them because if, you know, if their licences are put at threat, well, well, actually, we're coming up for the anniversary of Eureka, aren't we? And you couldn't mm-hmm. get a better example of, of you know, the same thing occurring where... The, the, it's a, it's a blue over the licence, in a sense, and, and what your rights are um, within a licence and the cost of that licence um, in a democracy. So, in other words, is the QVM management there to serve the interests of the storeholders and traders? Well, yes, when ownership was ceded from the federal government to the council, the Melbourne City Council, all those years ago, that's what was said in writing, that, that the, the, you know, the QVM management's responsible to council and they are both responsible to make sure that the, the stallholders of the big market uh, are successful. There. Which would mean that stallholders should have been involved throughout the whole process here That's right. and determining what should happen. I, know, I mentioned this last week in relation to um, what, it would go, what it would do to help the homeless in Melbourne, but again on this issue, um, Doyle has announced the government's going to spend a record $5.4 million to make this year's Christmas festival our most successful ever. Um, because he, he says um, trading season is the most important time of year for city businesses, so we're going to spend $5.4 million to help them. Um, and, but I know you'll, you'll be turning up to see all this, day because it says it will turn our famous sites into enchanted wonderlands and popular animated characters, including Santa and the Nutcracker Soldier, come to life right before your eyes. So it is a beautiful thing. But um, $5.4 million, that'd get that would be about what I reckon it might cost just to do whatever is needed to make the market, you know, okay without destroying it, wouldn't it? Well, it, w- it, w- it would at least uh, weatherproof some, you know, some some sections. Um, your point's right, though. That, that there's a, just a, a small amount of the type of spend they're thinking about carrying out of the market, which would set it up. Um, apart from anything else, advertising the daytime market. I mean, everything's mm. been on the night market to try and undermine the day market, which they've used very successfully as a tactic, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but one of the things the stallholders have been complaining about for years is that QVM management does not get out there and build, you know, the, the capacity of the market. It's allowed it to run down. Yep. OK, look, we'll take a break here. Stay on the line, Dave. Um, we're going to get Paddy Moriarty on the line and have both of you on the line at once. So if anything goes wrong in that little technical performance, um, we'll get back to you. But uh, <laughs> we hope you'll still be there when we come back. No worries. OK. Okay, we're back on air. Um, the red light came on. <laughs> and we've got Paddy Moriarty on the line. Paddy, welcome to the show. Welcome. Yep. Okay. And we've got Dave Kerritt on the line as well, Paddy. 
Um, Good on you, Paddy. D- Dave, look, P- Paddy, of course, is, um, perhaps we should say, don't assume people do know, Paddy um, is a researcher. He's Professor Moriarty these days out at Monash, and um, we're going to get you to discuss some of the technical aspects of what Dave's going to talk about. But, Dave, just we just thought we'd get an upgrade as well, update on where Earthwork is at and what current projects you're working on. Yeah, well, look... Um, and I mentioned earlier in the show, I'll just repeat for people who weren't listening, Earthworker is a body that started many years ago. Dave was involved from the outset attempting to bridge that gap between workers and the environment movement. So there we are. Yeah, so it's, a, it's year 20, actually, this year. Um, and uh, uh, basically the idea is to that, that we had originally, and we're now beginning to come to fruition, hopefully, uh, at last, uh, was that... Uh, we we would take the the green um, you know the green outcomes um, in relation to environment and and particularly climate emergency and look at how we might be able to by bringing the union and uh, green activist organisations together look at how we might bring those things about in really practical ways on the ground that addressed climate emergency and and basically capitalist collapse which. You know, you could see the signs of 20 years ago quite clearly on, with Enron and, and, and major companies like that going to the wall. So um, we, we're we now in a position, cutting that long story short, uh, where there, there is a factory now down in Morwell, um, fully equipped, uh, shovel ready, ready to work, um, business plan completed, uh, now uh, going back to meetings with state government and, and, and indeed uh, representatives of, of uh, others in the federal parliament um, looking at uh, procurement um, and especially in Victoria procurement in the public housing for solid hot water and other... other so yeah, you better explain what you're making and it's, it's a worker-run factory. It's, it's so it'll be uh, uh, solar hot water and other green products into low-income um, and uh, public housing Uh that there, thereby that that collective market, that state market, providing us with the time to get the big one in place, which for us is um, the the negotiated agreements between between unions and employers, where where the wage rise of workers can be used as the means to distribute the community owned, the cooperatively run uh, factories, the goods from those factories. So. We, we are looking at, um, as I say, solar hot water. We're looking at battery storage, a whole range of things. We've now got the right to make the heat pump, which we've, which was currently being made in China, uh, a really beautiful little heat pump um, out, out of the Latrobe Valley, which is very, very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so we then want to look at, at, at hemp and bamboo uh, for textile and the uniformed workforces where, where we would, uh, well, firefighter, ambulance, police, construction, nursing, all of those uniform workforces where we make the textile, we make the clothing, it, it, it's already in the UBAs. You know, it's not, not something we'd have to fight for. So thereby capitalising up the community-owned cooperative businesses, uh, our factories, uh, earthworker factories are not for profit. So all of the profit goes back into the creation of jobs that deal with climate emergency and 5% of everything we make going into the community sector. So, for instance, we've already put solar hot water into... Uh, Bob Maguire houses, uh, uh, hospices, etc. So, mm. look, it's it's um, I guess a it's a project mm. that, that brings uh, um, people together, uh, sometimes across very very um, harsh divides, um, 
and and gives gives us at least one significant way forward. Yeah, Paddy, um, you research in these areas, particularly alternatives to coal, etc., to fossils. Um, your comment on this? Yeah, look, um, solar hot water systems. That's um, that's a pretty good idea. Um, in fact. Uh, I could mention also of a passive of solar systems that is um, uh, you know design of houses and so on and also retrofitting houses so that uh, you can you, you you need to use less heating energy in um, in winter and less cooling energy in summer mm. um, so that could be something else that they could could look at these are generally pretty cost effective uh, yeah how do heat pumps work by the way just tell me that technically. Um, heat pumps. Well, actually, your fridge is sort of a heat pump. Uh, is it? <laughs> well, there's earth heat pumps as well. Um, in other words, a lot of places use. Uh, they're actually called um, geothermal heat pumps. But basically, uh, say these earth heat pumps. The way they work. Uh, let's say you have a large body of water near you. Well, it's going to um, warm up in summer and cool down in winter much slower than the than the air and the um, upper earth, right? And houses. Mm. So what you can do, if you if you're near, or even the Earth, you can use that. If it's if the Earth, for instance, is um, colder than than your house in in summer, then you can actually um, you can actually discharge your heat into that Earth, right? So it sort of functions like a reverse fridge, as it were, and mm. the same with a body of water. So um, and uh, well, for instance, a fridge. If you if you um, put the fridge on the on the <laughs> Uh, open the door and put it out at the window. Um, then you could use it as a uh, as a heat pump. It would then extract heat from outside and pump it into the house. Right? I probably couldn't because I'd have a broken back by that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's sort of the way it, it, it works, anyhow. And it's much more efficient than using, say, a, a resistive heating device, right? Or you can get from a resistive heating device, like a um, uh, a resistance wire in a um, you know electric heater, is a hundred percent. But with a heat pump, you can actually get two hundred percent or so or more of your based on the coefficient of performance of the electricity that you put in, because what you're doing is extracting heat from outside and pumping it into your house. Mm. Yeah, Pat, Patty's right there, Kev. It, 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 it's that thing about um, like uh, a bit bit like a reverse fridge where where you're taking the ambient heat or the solar heat, and you're, and you're drawing, you're sucking that in uh, through side and back vents on our on our system. There's a, there's a, a uh, refrigerant in there that that boils at 26 degrees below zero. So when that ambient heat hits it, it boils, it gasifies, and the compression of that gas then you know yeah does the job. Mm. And and you've been providing these for particularly low income households etc. for a while, haven't you? We have. We, we did a, 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 an agreement with uh, a business, Sydney SolarStream. We, we've done a few business, business agreements on the basis that if they agree that we can make the product here, ultimately. Um, Sydney SolarStream did. They've now sold to another mob, Edson, and Edson has the, has the same agreement with us. And then, in fact, they've approached us now and said, well, will you make it here? And we said, well, is the Pope a Catholic? And actually, this one is, isn't he? So um, we, we said yes. Uh, my bloody oath we will and to be able to you know get started on that maybe start making the outer casing out of the Latrobe Valley is a very very exciting prospect mm. and and just on um, 
I notice just well, no, no, I'll come back to that. I'll come back to what I was about to say. But let's get back to Earthworker. How many workers are currently employed or about to be employed? And when do you think you'll actually start work as such? Right. So we'll we'll start off with the with the the tank. So we go from 160 litre up to 400 litre uh, size tanks. Um, the most commonly used are 250 and 315 litre. Uh, all stainless steel. We've got a 15 year warranty on it. So. Already, ex Hazelwood people are coming around. There's two ex Hazelwood people on the on the board now of the factory. So, uh, what we set out to achieve is beginning to happen. We'll start just with the tank around about 20 people, and then as the product range increases, the factory size increases. Um, the original intent on our part was that factories would be around 50 people. Where it hits above that, look at then expanding into other factories. Uh, and building those in the carbon-dependent areas of Australia, so, you know, places like La Trobe Valley, the Hunter, Geelong, etc. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we believe that, that a strong social sector can be built as part of the Australian economy and that ultimately superannuation and other socialised forms of capital can get in behind that social sector. Yeah, but super's a separate area, isn't it? Because there's so much money there and so so little of it going to really socially useful purposes, as I see it. Well, indeed, and decisions being made about its use by people who, well, for instance, employers. I mean, they, you know, our movement's just as culpable. We, we continue to talk about an employer contribution with super. Well, of course, there isn't one. That's work mm. we've already done. We've been paid for it. and We set part of our wage aside in a fund. Now... The only ones on those boards should be workers. So we believe part of the work that Earthworker is doing is, is that, if you like, that political and industrial campaign about superannuation, uh, its use, uh, and the decisions about how it's used. Yeah, OK. And what I was going to move on to was that Horizon, which um, is the railway at former publicly owned but now privately owned railway, its main purpose is to move coal around northern Australia. Uh, it says that uh, coal is getting a bad rap, uh, and in fact it should be encouraged because by the way they move coal, they're actually taking good coal where where bad coal was, and therefore it's better for the environment that they move the coal they move because it's higher, it's it's better, it's low, less polluting, etc. Um, thoughts on that, Patty? I mean, this sort of nonsense. Yes, it's um, <laughs> it's interesting. In America, there's um, I think there there the claim is now. Um, that uh, carbon dioxide is a bit good for you. Um, this follows on from, remember, radiation that used to be a no safe limit. Now it is, a certain amount is, is a bit good for you, right? Uh, th- these are very convenient facts. It's true, of course, that carbon dioxide, to a certain extent, does fertilise um, plant life. But even with that, the temperature is still rising, right? So, um, yeah, so look, uh, I mean, I can see where their argument's going. It's better if you use... Um, black coal rather than brown coal, for instance, because it's mm. less polluting per... or there's less carbon dioxide produced per uh, joule of energy produced, right? But uh, it's not a very good argument. I think, <laughs> no. I think where they're going is that about 60% of their profits comes from coal. Um, I think that could be a, a, a simpler explanation. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's sort of Occam's razor, I think, that yeah. works here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In fact, Friends of the Earth um, in America, but with, with backup from a number of other people, the international policy analyst for Friends of the Earth US, uh, Kate DeAngelis, has just brought out a report with others, et al., um, in which she claims that government funding bodies, and in Australia, the Export Finance and Insurance Corporations, the one mentioned, 
Um, they're funding massive levels of coal and fossil fuel around the world, and they're, call it, they're crying out for it to stop. They say um, the ECAs, these are these government bodies, provided 12 times as much support to fossil fuels as clean energy. They provide $32 billion annually to support oil and gas projects, and Japan providing $13 billion annually is the worst offender. Um, again, this is one of those situations where government bodies with countries that have signed the Paris Accord should be looking at maybe something different? Yeah, well, as I, I think I mentioned before, but a, a World Bank report in 2015 claimed that the, that the world subsidies to fossil fuels were something like between 5 and $6 trillion. Um, some of this was sort of direct subsidies. For instance, at one stage in Venezuela, presumably before the meltdown, I think petrol was selling at something like 12 cents a litre. Um, and uh, in some of the Middle Eastern countries, it also sells very cheaply. But mostly it was um, externality subsidies, for instance, well, part of carbon dioxide and um, air pollution and so on, and also subsidies for coal mining in um, some European countries. But it looks as though, um, even though in the US the government is supporting uh, coal so industry, it, it looks like it is on the way out, right? I don't think even... Uh, Trump is going to actually revive it, right? Um, um, partly because, well, um, natural gas, which of course is still a, um, a fossil fuel, but with, um, uh, 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 with gas turbines you can actually get uh, greater efficiency than you can with coal, and it's more a convenient fuel to use. So mm. it looks like, um, apart from here at least anyhow, uh, and in Europe the same thing, I think coal is on the way out. Yeah, comment there, Dave, at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I think China's going to be one of the big um, influences on this, obviously, and the, the, the recent Congress again, I mean, they've, they've indicated they're on track for 40% renewable by 2020, and by 2030, 70%. So, you know, I mean, I, I think the dollar, the dollar is what closed Hazelwood, and they couldn't get the return on their investment, and they had to... In, they were being required to invest too much to keep the plant running at some sort of re reasonable level. Um, you know, so I, I, I think that's the that, that's the big the big driver for them. Uh, unfortunately for us, because of course it means it's, it's way too slow. I mean, yeah. well, the backbench fossils are running policy since the government announced its so-called wonderful new policy last week. I've noticed two coal companies have said they will now extend. Um, either their mines or their um, their um, their um, coal plants. So um, obviously, it's not going to discourage people. No, no, it's just. What I can say up. here is that um, the, the fossil fuel industries in general are worried about stranded assets. Right. In other words, a lot of their um, assets are, are fossil fuels, and if they don't get them out soon, they will never get them out. And that partly explains this frantic rush to try to pump oil or gas or coal or get it out of the ground as soon as possible because otherwise it'll just be a wasted asset as far as they're concerned. Mm. They'll have it on their books, but it won't be worth anything. Yeah, well, let's hope that comes much sooner than <laughs> later. Not that they get it out of the ground, but it's not worth anything. Um, all right, look, we're going to have to fold up there because it's 9.58. But, look, thanks to both of you. Um, Dave, thanks, Kevin. Uh, thank you, Paddy, on, for Kevin. coming on. And, Dave, thank for, thanks for uh, coming on, even if you did put other factors ahead of us. But, um, anyway, um, but thanks a lot, seriously, for both of you for coming on. 
That's Dave Kerrin and um, Paddy Moriarty. Dave, of course, long-term union activist involved with Earth Worker, the Karkat campaign, and Paddy Moriarty out at Monash researching away and giving us the benefit of all that research. Next week, ha- um, next week's transport, isn't it, um, Andy? It is. It's the first week. Awesome. November okay, 1. Like it is no, November 1 next value. Wednesday, I think, isn't it? November 1 next Wednesday. Is I think it is. Where's the um, year going? Yeah, so um, that's right. So that being the case, it is Transport Day. Um, and a few things I wanted to raise today, I meant to raise with Dave, I forgot, particularly the International Monetary Fund this week has come out with some, for them, some incredibly radical comments.